Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the best of the serious, the curious and the curiouser from across this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week, the new gold rush to the stars... South Korea's fortune-telling industry foresees a rosy future and parking etiquette among the snowdrifts of Chicago. But first, the meddler was our cover line this week. On February the 16th, the American special counsel, Robert Mueller, indicted 13 Russians. Mr Mueller believes he's evidence to prove that in 2014, Russia launched a conspiracy against American democracy. Our cover story argued that Putin's meddling is exposing weaknesses in Western democracy and that the West needs to do more about it. Perhaps because Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, thought the CIA was fomenting an uprising in Ukraine, the Internet Research Agency, backed by an oligarch with links to the Kremlin, set up a trolling team, payment systems and false identities. Its aim was to widen divisions in America and, latterly, to tilt the vote in 2016, from Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. This assault has targeted both sides of the Atlantic. In Europe... Russia is thought to have financed extremist politicians, hacked computer systems, organised marches and spread lies. Again, its aim seems to have been to deepen divides. The tools of this subversion are immensely more powerful, more persuasive and, yes, more affordable than the 1960s tactics of bribing journalists or planting stories. It does not cost much to use Facebook to spot sympathisers, ferret out potential converts and perfect the catchiest taglines. With ingenuity, you can fool the system into favouring your tweets and posts. If you hack the computers of democratic bigwigs, as the Russians did, you have a network of bots ready to dish the dirt. With a modest budget of little over $1 million a month and working mostly from the safety of St. Petersburg, the Russians manage botnets and false profiles, earning millions of retweets and likes. In America, these tactics have chipped away at the existing cracks in society. It played up race, urging black voters to see Mrs Clinton as an enemy and stay at home on polling day. It sought to inflame white resentment, even as it called on progressives to vote for Jill Stein of the Green Party. Right after the Parkland school shooting, Russian bots began to pile into the debate about gun control. We argued that the West has so far largely allowed this to happen. Mr Mueller acted because two presidents fell short. Barack Obama agonised over evidence of Russian interference but held back before eventually imposing sanctions. Mr Trump's failing is of a different order. Despite having access to intelligence from the day he was elected, he has treated the Russian scandal purely in terms of his own legitimacy. He should have spoken out against Mr Putin and protected America against Russian hostility. 
Just now, with Mr. Trump obsessively blaming the FBI and Democrats, it looks as if America does not believe democracy is worth fighting for. You can find out how Western leaders can fortify their democracies against this threat and win back the confidence of their voters in this week's edition of The Economist. It's available on newsstands, online and on The Economist app. But let's put the paper down just for a moment for a whistle-stop tour of the best of the week in Economist Radio. The latest episode of our chat show, The Economist Asks, also got to grips with dodgy dealings by secretive Russians, but these were at least partly fictional. Hussein Amini is the co-creator of the television drama series McMafia, a bit of a hit in Britain, and just released in the United States. It's based on a non-fiction book of the same name by Misha Glenny about how globalisation has played into the hands of the criminal underworld. The scale and scope of it was almost too big for film, whereas long-form television drama, and as, as that became sort of more and more popular, felt exactly the right medium for it. And, and so then it was a question of trying to find, I guess, a narrative that allowed James Watkins and I, my co-creator, to get into the, the world of, of, of Misha's book, which is this sort of really the globe and how, how you know, the cartels are dealing with the triads who are sort of fighting with the Yakuza and competing with the Russian Mafia. And, and it's sort of Game of Thrones with mobs, really. Uh, and that's, that's what we were after. I'm a banker, not a gangster. All I need is a banker. These wars are fought in the boardrooms, not on the street. Money, moving money is your weapon. You can sit behind your desk anywhere in the world and still bring down the man who killed your uncle. And you can hear the rest of that interview, including Hussein Amini's reflections on his time working for Harvey Weinstein and his advice for writing a killer screenplay by subscribing to The Economist Asks. It's available via Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. No favouritism here. If you don't fancy organised crime as your path to riches, you could always try a spot of stargazing. Have a listen to this from Babbage, our science and technology show. They fired off the boosters and they have subwoofers under this thing, really, really large speakers. So when they fired the rocket sound, it actually vibrated the entire structure. And then on the screen, you see smoke and fire. And then, you know, after a while, the, the vibration sort of reaches its maximum and you go shooting off into space and you see the Earth recede. The entire capsule view out your window, quote unquote, which is a screen, tips and you see the curvature of the Earth. You see the edge of the atmosphere meeting space. You right uh, yourself and you head towards the moon. That's Dr. Shana Gifford. In 2015, she was one of four crew sent by NASA on a two-week simulated mission to an asteroid. She told Tim Cross, our science correspondent, why these flying hunks of mineral have suddenly become a whole lot more interesting. Someone did some math and they said, OK, the Earth has only a certain amount of platinum and palladium, which we need for all sorts of electronics. It's mostly concentrated in Asia, South Africa. And it's, it's rather rare. But not in asteroids, necessarily. I mean, there, as much as 1% of all the asteroids, the near-Earth asteroids, may have platinum. And it's really just sitting there. So now the space race is on. The gold rush to the stars has begun. To expand your universe every week, subscribe to Babbage. It's published every Wednesday.
And Friday's episode of The Week Ahead revealed that what's written in the stars could also make your fortune in South Korea. As Stephanie Studer, formerly our Seoul bureau chief, now based in Hong Kong, explains, the South Korean fortune-telling business could soon be worth $3.5 billion. It's surprising, I suppose, in many ways that South Korea is somewhere where fortune-telling continues to thrive. When we think about the country, it's a place that is technologically advanced and very much a modern country. But in many ways, actually, it's the movement online which is part of this boom. There's old-fashioned fortune-telling tents that you'll find on streets in Seoul, which are still popular. But around university districts, there are new stores opening for students which offer tarot card readings in particular, which are becoming very popular. So that Western influence coming in and also smartphone apps. My own crystal ball tells me you can hear The Week Ahead every Friday. If you like the cards we've dealt to you, do take a moment to rate us on your app. It makes all the difference to all our fortunes. The sense of mystery persists as we turn back to our paper incarnation now. An article in our Middle East and Africa section investigated strange goings-on in Senegal. It was too much of a coincidence for the members of No to Freemasonry and Homosexuality, a coalition of religious groups. Emmanuel Macron, France's president, Rihanna, a pop star, and several hundred African Freemasons were all due to visit Senegal around the same time this month. The group decided that sinister forces must be at work, no doubt plotting against the country. Freemasons from across Africa were gathering for their annual general knees-up in one of Dakar's nicest hotels. On the agenda were worthy topics such as education, freedom, governance and economic development. But the hotel, rattled by the conspiracy-minded protesters and worried about violence, cancelled the event. Still, the brouhaha has shone a light on how Freemasonry, a secretive movement that originated in 16th century European guilds, has taken root on a continent where finger snaps and fist bumps are more common than secret handshakes and rolled up trouser legs. It's not the most comfortable club to belong to. Masons say that theirs is a fraternal order of men who believe in a creator, the great architect, and do good works. But because this is a secret society, they are widely viewed with suspicion. In Africa, because of their association with former colonial masters, perhaps even more so. But it seems they're in good, if unexpected, company. After taking on the Freemasons, the protesters in Dhaka turned on Rihanna, who was to share a stage with Mr Macron and Macky Sall, Senegal's president. Mr Sall did not back down. The event was a success, extracting pledges from donors of more than $2.3 billion for children's education. Some might be well spent on teaching the virtues of tolerance. Well, it's not quite secret handshakes, but in the United States section this week, our Chicago correspondent delved deep into an equally sacred ritual, though one far too chilly for rolled-up trousers. Dibs are a Chicago tradition that divides Chicagoans. If you shovel snow from a parking space and defend it with some old furniture to mark the space, you can claim it for as long as the city is covered in snow. If someone spends all their time digging their car out, do not drive into that spot, said Mr Daly in a press conference in 2000. This is Chicago. Fair warning. In heavy snow, the streets of Chicago sprout second-hand furniture. Chairs, mostly lawn chairs, the tattier the better, and traffic cones are the most commonly used dibs. 
but cutouts of Leonardo DiCaprio, statues of saints or the Virgin Mary, giant stuffed teddy bears and sparsely dressed mannequins have also been spotted. Not acceptable as dibs are empty cereal boxes, Zimmer frames and cardboard signs with death threats. Chicagoans are going to increasingly creative lengths in pursuit of parking. One created a chair with a skull and crossbones in the shape of shovels. Another simply says, nope, in red letters. A third appeals to gentler sentiments with a wooden birdhouse resting on a branch adorned with the sign, please do not disturb the birds. But there are limits. Even though lefty out there, another local artist made a chair for charity inscribed with, if you take my space, I break a you face, you cannot slash the tyres or threaten someone who, wittingly or not, slides into your space anyway. This is the Midwest after all, so be nice. And finally, if 2018 so far seems a little lacking in heroes, our books and arts section has the remedy, a proper rip-roaring adventure story for the modern age. As he built his e-commerce empire, Jack Ma, the co-founder of Alibaba, proudly sported the nickname Fong Chin Yung. The moniker was borrowed from a cunning swordsman in a novel by Jin Yung. In spite of official sales estimated at 300 million copies, plus multiple spin-off films, television serials and games, the 14 martial arts epics written by Jin Yung between 1955 and 1972 have remained unknown to most Western readers. If you like this first tale, then pace yourself, as there's plenty more where that came from. A Hero Born is the first of the 12 volumes of Legends of the Condor Heroes, written in the late 1950s. Set in the years after 1205, it enjoyably wields the weapons of Usha, traditional martial arts fiction, with its spectacular combat and pauses for philosophy, to show Chinese identity under threat from foreign and domestic foes. Enter the Dragons of Salvation, a ragtag band of unlikely heroes. An eccentric Kung Fu clan known as the Seven Freaks of the South and the militant Taoist monks of the Chunjung sect. They are first rivals, then collaborators. Though strained, their joint mission embodies a pact between physical force and the more enlightened path of wisdom. In Anna Holmwood's spirited translation, this action-packed and ideas-laden saga is as revealing of modern as of ancient China. Fighting, philosophy and a mirror to current affairs, what more could you want? And to our listeners around the world, which ripping yarns in other languages do you think deserve a wider audience? Do send us your nominations to radioeconomist.com. We're also on Twitter at Economist Radio. This is the end of this week's tasting menu. Remember, you can venture deeper into all of the stories we've featured here online. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. 